Oh, is that all? You can be seated. Aren't you glad you've never got the giggles? On Wednesday, Jerry and I were driving back from Bismarck, and just after we passed Miles City, uh, there was a flashing wrench on the dashboard. And accompanied with that wrench, there was a, a, a letter and a number, B1, and I was pretty sure I knew that that meant it was time to change the oil, so I wasn't concerned at all. And then it started flashing with what I thought was a B13, and I thought, I don't know what B13 is, and so um, while I'm driving, Jerry was first trying to look through the manual and then realized, we're smarter than this, just Googled it. Um, and came to find out that um, in addition to needing an oil change, we needed a tire rotation and we needed the transmission fluid changed. And what we were made aware of by the van was that there was something that we were going to need to attend to, but it wasn't something we had to stop immediately for. But there would come a time if we did not attend to that need that our van had, it would start to create some pretty serious issues for us. And I think that God created the human body to function in a very similar sort of way. The human body itself gives us certain warnings. And those warnings are very similar because there are certain things that the body needs. We need sleep. We need food. We need water. And you can skip a meal or you can work through an entire night and you can do that for a time. But if that becomes your continual perpetual way of doing things at some point, it catches up to you, doesn't it? Problem is, some of us don't even know what the warning signs are, that we might be overworking, we might be under too much stress, we might be asking too much of our bodies. And in case you don't know, here's a pretty quick hit list of some warning signs that your body might be sending. Headaches, dizziness, insomnia, fatigue, a lack of concentration, loss of memory, restlessness, lack of motivation. Increased experiences of irritation, anger, aggression, guilt. When you start to experience these things, God is telling us there's something that we need to pay attention to. And does that mean if you don't handle it in the next two minutes, you're going to have a crisis? No. But if at some point you don't stop and address those things, it does mean you're going to have either a medical or a spiritual or an emotional crisis. And so this morning, I want to address the demands that we place on ourselves, not simply for the sake of health of your body, but for the recognition that there is something behind all of this that is driving us into stress and busyness and hurry, and whatever it is that's behind it may be a spiritual symptom, maybe a problem with something happening in our soul and something happening in our spirit. In 2008, there was a professor from Charleston Southern University named Michael Zigarelli. And he shared his conclusion to a five-year worldwide study called Obstacles to Growth. And in that study, he had asked these more than 20,000 people, what was it that was getting in the way of their spiritual growth and their spiritual development? And I kind of found his conclusion anticlimactic. I don't think I needed 20,000 people and I wouldn't need five years to figure this out. But he said, one of the most common symptoms that are hindering and halting people's spiritual growth is busyness. And he said that it's because this is his, his hypothesis, that he believes that there is this cycle that we have 
bought into and that we live into as people, that we begin to accept the cultural norm of busyness, hurry, and overload. That, that we think that our lives should be going at this pace and we just simply accept it. And when we accept that, what that means is we begin to disconnect from spiritual people, from spiritual relationships, and from spiritual things. And when we start to disconnect from those spiritually grounded things, we are more susceptible to the cultural assumptions about what we need to be doing and what life looks like and its pace and its busyness. And then as a result, we uncritically accept the the cultural norms that demand that we live even busier and more frantic lives. And the key problem he recognizes when we disconnect with that spiritual source that helps to give us direction and grounding. And so this morning, we're going to explore the question, how do we keep nourishing our souls in a world that is moving faster and faster? And so we begin with the text that we had just shared in Mark. As soon as they had left the synagogue, they entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law was in bed with a fever, and they told him about her at once. And he came and he took her by the hand and lifted her up. Then the fever left her, and she began to serve them. That evening at sundown, they brought to him all who were sick or possessed with demons, and the whole town was gathered around the door. And he cured many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons, and he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. And there is this pattern that we will discover and see very, very early on in Mark. It will continue for at least the first eight chapters. And the pattern is this. If you develop the ability to identify a need, and then if you develop in any way a way to address or fix or heal that need, then you are going to be, experience some sort of an increase in the demand of your time or of your energy or of your resources, and it will continue to spiral upward. That's what you see happening here with Jesus. He did it once, and nobody's satisfied to allow him just to do it once. There's more and more and more people who are demanding something of Jesus. I find it interesting. Most people are afraid of failure. The really good news about failure is this. If you, if you fail something kind of unquestionably and dramatically fail, guess what? You're not going to need to worry about doing very much more of that in your lifetime. Think about yourself being a surgeon. And, and, and you manage in your surgery to kill 300% more than your colleagues. You think you're going to be busy doing an awful lot of surgeries in your career? But what if you are the one surgeon who, in fact, brings to healing people at a 300% more often success rate? Guess what your calendar is going to look like? The demands on your time and on your energy. I think we see this bearing out in the parable of the talents, don't we? You remember the parable, right? One person is given five and another is given two and another is given one. And how does it end up? That's a trick question. We often get the math wrong. We usually think that at the end it's 10, it's four, and it's one, but it's not. If you look at Matthew chapter 25, 28 through 29, you will find that how it ends up is one has 11, one has four, and the other has zero, because the last was taken and given to the one who had five talents. There is this recognition, if you do something well, it will increase your scope of influence, increase your scope of involvement, and the question becomes, is that a good thing or is it a bad thing? 
And I think we can realize the answer is it just depends what you do with all those extra demands on yourself, on your time, and on your energy. See, what happens is Jesus will find in the first eight chapters of Mark this increase, increasing numbers of people. In fact, it comes that the best word that Mark likes to use to describe all these people is the crowds. That soon surrounding Jesus will be crowds here and will be crowds there. And we want to know, are the crowds good? See, in, the, in a Christian context, when we hear, hear the word crowds, we think that's amazing. I, I mean, what does every church say? Well, what do you want to do? They said, we want to grow. We want more numbers because numbers represent souls and we want to reach souls. We think of Billy Graham standing and preaching in front of 1.1 million people and say, yeah, that's what we want. More numbers is always better. And yet we come to find in the gospel of Mark that there is something ambiguous at best. James Edward says in crowds, in, in Mark Crowds are neutral at best. They provide both an opportunity and an impediment to Jesus' ministry. Maybe there is something more to ministry than noses and nickels or than butts and budgets. Is there something else that Jesus is calling us to? Notice how Mark talks about the crowds. In Mark 1.45, Jesus heals a leper. Not a leopard, as Jeff clarified for us this morning, but a leper. And then he goes and he tells people about it. And we are told then Jesus could no longer go into any town openly, but he stayed out in the country. Chapter two, he does come back into the city of Capernaum. And while he's there, remember the guys, they bring their friend who is a a paralytic and they can't even get to Jesus because there are so many people there. The crowds are present. In Mark three, people are coming to Jesus from Judea and Jerusalem and Edomia from beyond the Jordan, from the region of Tyre and Sidon. And so in Mark 3, 9, Jesus told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd so that they would not crush him. In Mark 6, after he sends out the apostles, they come back. He said to them, come away to a deserted place all by yourselves and rest for a while. For many were coming and going and they had no leisure, not even to eat. And they went away in the boat to a deserted place by themselves. We need to realize this demand on our time and on our energy and on our resources has both a benefit, but it also has a liability. There is a risk and there is a danger associated with all of these people who each have their own request of us. I think in America, we are very good at adding and very poor at subtracting. And no, I'm not talking about our math skills. I'm talking about our life skills. The solution for us always seems to be that bigger is always better, more is always superior, and so all we need to learn to do is to figure out how do we juggle one more thing. We like to add, but never subtract. I'm guessing you've probably heard the story about um, the, the jar, and you have the sand and the pebbles, and you have the rocks, and you say, how do you get it on there? Put the big rocks in first, right? And then you put the, the, the pebbles in, and then you put the sand in there. But, but Greg McCowan, who, who's writing about this sort of stuff, he says, instead of this image, this is probably what most of us are dealing with. We right now have too many big rocks. That even the big rocks don't fit in the jar because we've been adding and adding and adding. And I think what we need to learn to do with our time and our commitments is the same thing we need to learn to do with our technology. We tend to have only one way we look at technology, Only one question we ask of technology, which is, what do I gain? 
This year, a new phone is coming out, and what benefits does it add? What do I gain? But we need to learn to add a question. This is a question that Amish always ask of technology. They ask two questions, not just what do they gain, but they ask the question, what do we lose? Something is lost when we make commitments that we cannot keep, that demand too much from us. And so we have to be aware of the benefits of the crowds, but we also have to be aware of the potential risks. See, ironically, in Jesus's, in Mark's narrative, he only gives two verses to the temptation of Jesus. So let some people to believe, oh, Mark doesn't really have a, a temptation narrative because Matthew, you have nine verses. Luke, you have, or Matthew, you have 11 verses. Luke, you have 13 verses. And you say, why isn't there a long temptation narrative? This is a temptation narrative for Jesus. What is Jesus going to do when the crowd starts saying, we want more of this. We want more of you. We want more. Is Jesus going to realize that he is in the flesh and that in the flesh he has certain limitations? And he will have to make a choice between pandering to the the desires and wishes of the crowd or between submitting himself to the will of his father. And so that's why Mark 1, 35-39 is instructive. In the morning, while it was still very dark, He got up and he went out to a deserted place. And there he prayed. And while Simon and his companions hunted for him, and when they found him, they said, everyone is searching for you. And he answered, let us go on to the neighboring towns so that I might proclaim the message there also. For that is what I came to do. And he went throughout Galilee, proclaiming the message of the kingdom, proclaiming the message in their synagogues and casting out demons. When it comes to nourishing your souls, I want to point out four things that we find in Jesus' example as an example for us. Number one, Jesus sets an example for us with the importance of living a life that has a rhythm of both extracting ourselves and engaging ourselves. There is a time to engage with people. There is a time to say yes to requests. There is a time to say, I will be there. I can do this. I am available. That's what ministry is. That's what the mission of God is. That's what it means to be people who live in the kingdom of God is the ability to say, yes, I can. And yet to do ministry in the footsteps of Jesus, to be people who are engaged in our community, we also need to realize that there must be a rhythm where we say, no, I can not. There must be times that I extract myself from all of the demands, from all of the busyness. We need, to, we need to learn what Jesus seemed to learn, that apart from a relationship with the Father, he can do nothing. That just as we hunger and thirst for food, Jesus hungered and thirst, thirsted for righteousness in a relationship with his Father. In the rhythm of your week, do you have times when you extract yourself and reserve a time with your Father? A time when there's the demands of family, the demands of work, the demands of community, where you pull away and you make sure that you cease and you spend time with your God. I do realize you can do this in the context of everyday life. You don't necessarily have to have this little corner you do it in. But I believe in our relationship with God, if there's never a time that we are just solely present to God, it would be like walking around your house, having a conversation with a loved one, always with headphones in. It probably wouldn't nourish your relationship very well. And so the question we ask ourselves then is, is how do I extract myself 
in order to re-engage with my father. Then the second thing I think we learn from this passage It's related to the first is that we need to realize how intentional Jesus is about moving away from the crowds. He seeks out a deserted place to pray. Physically, spatially, he removes himself from all the demands. And he finds a quiet, deserted place where he can reconnect with his father. And he does this at the moment when the demands on his time are the highest. This is not a slow weekend. This is not a, 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 a less-paced work week that he says, ah, finally, an opportunity. It's when the demands are the highest that Jesus is intentional about having time with his Father. I seem to notice two different approaches in how we spend time with our Father. And the first approach is what we can call the Christmas song approach. Now, warning about this illustration. It has nothing to do with Christmas and has nothing to do with Christmas songs. I did this lesson out at Bismarck, and the next day at breakfast, one of the ladies said, so tell me about how you feel about Christmas songs. And I realized, I think you might have missed the message. There comes a time when we get more and more leery about the songs in the thousands, isn't there? And sometimes, if it's in the month of December, and somebody says, we're going to sing a song in the thousands, I don't know if you've looked there recently, but like, hark the herald angels sing, and joy to the world, that there are some people who say, we cannot and ought not to sing them in this month. And the defense is, and it's a great defense, you can sing it anytime. Is that true? Absolutely. I will tell you, I've been in Billings for now eight and a half years, and I can tell you on one occasion that we sang one of those songs outside of December. Because sometimes when you can do something anytime, it means you never do it. Why do stores say, Black Friday, in the next 24 hours, you need to come and buy this, or this deal's going to be gone forever. Why don't they just say, hey, anytime in the next three years, you want to saunter down to the store, come on in and we'll give you a deal. Because they know if you can do it anytime, that you'll never do it. And so that's the one approach, is the anytime approach, the Christmas song approach. The second approach is what we'll call the Martin approach. Martin was one of my friends, grew up in Papua New Guinea, and in New Guinea, when you're born, you don't have this birth certificate, so nobody knew when he was born. His parents died, and he was adopted. So his mom says, I've got this kid here, and no one knows when his birthday is. Now, if you had a vote in the matter, what would you say? Would you say, just celebrate my birthday anytime it's convenient? What Janet did was she picked a date. March 1st, that's his birthday. Everybody knows it's not his real birthday. It's just a made-up day. But it gives an occasion every year to make sure we're intentional about celebrating his birthday. And I think that those are the two models that people use with their spiritual lives. The one is, I can pray to God anytime. And so I'll just keep driving away, driving away, driving away. And I see there's a warning light, but I can do this anytime. And others are very intentional. Regardless of the busyness, Regardless of the demands, I'm going to make time with my Father. When we approach our time with God based on happenstance, it often doesn't happen. Well, if I happen to have a slow weekend, if I happen to have a less demanding week, if I happen to have a week that the kids don't need anything from their mom or their dad, then. And those things often don't happen. If we are waiting for the demands to disappear, let me be the first to tell you, they will not. Jesus is intentional. When it is the busiest, he extracts himself in order to have time with his father. 
The third thing about nourishing our soul from this text is you need to realize you can't expect others to protect that time for you. Notice what Jesus has now extracted himself. He's gone off to pray. And what are the people and what are the disciples doing at that very moment? And Simon and his companions hunted for him. Hunting is not a a glowing, wonderful, this is a great thing they're doing. This is negative. They've gone out and they need to find Jesus. And why do they need to find Jesus? Because they're the ones who are at the front desk saying, "Uh, yeah, sorry, Jesus will be with you in, I don't know. I don't even know where he is. And so they go out and then what are they doing? They are searching for Jesus. What we need to know about this word searching is it is the Greek word zeteo, to, to seek, to look for, to desire. Of the 11 times it's used in Mark, only once is it used positively. R.T. France says of this word, it is used in a hostile sense. It's used in Mark 3.32. His mother and his brothers were asking for Jesus. That word asking is the same word. And remember, it's because Jesus is saying crazy things. And they're going to basically put their hand over his mouth and say, stop talking about this. It's not an ideal heartfelt seeking. It's a seeking so that they can get him to be quiet. It's the same word that's used in Mark 11 when the chief priests and the scribes were looking for a way to kill him. This seeking of Jesus is not a genuine heartfelt thing. The problem is Jesus is not fitting into their agenda. Jesus is not available when they think he needs to be available. And have you ever had occasions where you were not available when other people thought you should be available? They tend to come out searching for you, and when they find you, they're often not in a great mood. Corey Ten Boom once said, if the devil can't make you sin, he'll just make you busy. Hmm. I wonder if that ever happens in our lives. And can we recognize the temptation here? It feels so good for the boss to say, you're my most reliable employee. I can call you anytime and you'll be here. Doesn't it feel so good for someone to say, anytime I need you, you are always available. Feels wonderful to think, man, Craig, you're so important. Craig, you're so crucial to the situation. Craig, we couldn't feel, we couldn't get through this without you. And it's all good, and it's all well until the first time you say, I can't do it. And then all of a sudden, you're a pompous jerk. Because I needed you, and you weren't there for me. It could be the way the kids treat you. It could be the way your boss treats you. It could be the way friends treat you. It's a tough thing to make yourself unavailable when everyone is searching for you. But Jesus knows how fickle the crowds can be, doesn't he? This crowd who is searching for him, they want to find him, is very soon going to be doing what? Saying crucify him. Because the crowds are fickle. Don't expect others to protect your time with God. That's something you need to make sure you do for yourself. And number four, you need to know what your purpose is. Notice how Jesus says, hey, we're not actually going to do everything people is asking me to do. That's, that's a key part of this text. They say, you need to come back. And Jesus says, actually, we're going to go on. And how does everybody who just got left behind feel? Why didn't Jesus come back? Why didn't Jesus heal this? But Jesus said that he's going to go on to other towns for that is what I came to do. Do you know what you're living for? Do you know what your purpose is? 
I mean, if I told you I would like to meet with you tomorrow night at 8 p.m., do you think anywhere along the way you might ask the question, why? I want to know what the purpose of us getting together is. And if there is no purpose, if there is no reason, you'll say, sorry, I'm busy. But how many of us are going through life without any idea of what really our purpose here is? We just go from one commitment, one demand to another. You wake up to an alarm clock. You rush around to get ready. You speed off to work. At work, you bounce from one event to another event, from one task to another task. You grab lunch. You type on your keyboard. You tighten the bolts. You give instructions. You head home just in time to rush through dinner just so you can fulfill one last commitment of the day. And exhausted, you fall into the bed and you say, what was all this for? What's our purpose? Why are we here? And to answer that question fully would be, at the very least, a sermon and probably a whole sermon series. But I do want us to recognize this about Jesus. There are some things we learn about purpose from Jesus. I am not convinced that all of us are called to be itinerant itinerant preaching ministers like Jesus is called to be. But I am convinced what we can learn from Jesus is that Jesus' purpose was not wrapped up in himself. His purpose was to be lived in submission to the will that his father had for him. He believed God had a purpose for him. And his job was to be aware of that purpose and then to go out and to fulfill that relationship. And how did Jesus have such clarity about his purpose? It's because of the relationship he had with God. In fact, I think Jesus practices an inversion of Michael Zigarelli's chart. Jesus begins not with what is culturally everybody doing and he falls in line. Jesus begins, first of all, by being connected to his father. And it is on the basis of that connection, he is then able to make wise decisions about what he will and will not engage in. And it's that that allows him to have a very clear sense of his purpose. He doesn't begin by looking around at neighbors and saying, what are you guys doing? Because I want to do the same thing. He is in relationship with his father and he allows his father to set the rhythm, the pace, and the agenda of his ministry. I want to encourage you to pay attention to the warning lights that you may be experiencing in your life. There probably are very few of those warning lights that need to be addressed thus this second or this instant. But be very well aware that God made us with limitations. That if we do not stop at some point, if we do not rest, our bodies will suffer. And if in our relationship with God, we do not stop, find a deserted place to be in relationship with our Father, our souls will suffer. How do we address these warning lights? Four things. Number one, we find the rhythm of extracting ourselves from others and engaging with God. Number two, we must be intentional about that rhythm. Number three, we have to remember that we can't expect others to protect our time with God. And number four, you need to know what your purpose is. And so as you engage in these things, as you make an effort to do these things, I offer this word of blessing. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you peace. And just realize as we enter into a world that is demanding so much of us, we don't enter alone. We enter into the world with the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, with the love of God, and with the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. We're going to sing a song here in a moment. And as we do, I will be in the back. Some of our elders will be in the back. If you want somebody to pray with you, um, if you think I've noticed some warning lights in my life I've been ignoring, 
Um, we just invite you to come and to find us in the back while we stand and sing this next song together. So let's go and stand together. <laughs>